Welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist Radio Show with host Karen Rands. A compassionate capitalist is someone who invests their money into entrepreneur endeavors to bring innovation to the market and create wealth for all those involved. Karen shares insights and best practices for entrepreneurs to succeed and investors to share in that success without all the risks. And now... Welcome to the show. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this. Uh, if you're listening live, uh, thank you very much. If you've listened to a replay, please, wherever you're listening to, uh, take a moment to comment and give us some feedback. It would be really helpful as we continue forward with our goals for this year and the kind of topics that we're going to bring to our listening audience of investors and entrepreneurs. Of course, this is Karen Rands. And as the host, I'm excited about our topic today. We do a lot where we talk about attracting angel investments and, um, you know, how investors, a lot of my investors that are my guests will talk about how they approach evaluating um, companies and all, you know, along those lines, you know, how they've built their network of investors for the investors that are listening to learn about that. But we don't often get a lot of venture capitalists or people that have insight into venture capital. And if you, particularly if you're a tech company, and really for any company that is bringing innovation to the market, bringing new innovative products to the market, new methodologies or processes, business processes, you know, thing, business models, things like that. There's, and as we, if you've listened to any of my shows or watched uh, any of the videos, you know, and if you've been a student of, of, the, of the topic, then you know there's this kind of pipeline of funding, right, where we have uh, friends and family round, which are really the most subjective of the investors because they have a, uh, a connection to the whatever the entrepreneur is doing or specifically to the entrepreneur. And there's a trust factor there where they can carry, they, can, they are willing to put their money at risk with a lot of the unknowns that angel investors that are in the business of investing that you typically provide the next round of capital they expect more of those questions to be answered, that the product's validated, it's in the market, it's generating revenue, you've got some customers. A lot of times that's the direction that they, you know, the next round of capital. And then we look at venture capital as being the real kind of growth capital that companies are having. They really have, um, they understand how they're generating revenue, uh, but they just really need to grow and scale and venture capital comes in there into that point. And then sometimes there's private equity after that or additional venture capital. And there's a, an overlap sometimes between the angel investor groups and the venture capital. And that, you know, when you add the various ways of raising money from a crowd on the crowdfunding, that intermixes in some cases, depending on the type of company. Uh, it's, there's different ways, but we're not talking about that today. I have lots of different uh, podcasts on that. I'm just really excited to be able to talk about that that bridge, if you will, or that connection between angel investors and venture capitalists. And what does that mean? What does it look like for venture capital, particularly in the boutique, sort of that earlier stage venture capital? You know, what, what does that look like for the entrepreneurs? And then what does that look like for investors that are wanting to plug into networks like that that behave more like venture capitalists than like an angel investor group? And so Teresa Esser, when I met her at the um, a family office summit, we had, um, she had a book out. And of course, as you know, as my, as an author, I'm, I love to meet particularly other women that are in the financial space and understand entrepreneurism, understand investment in entrepreneurism, and, you know, have taken the time and trouble to put their knowledge onto paper for other people to benefit from. It was just very exciting to, to meet Teresa at the time. She sent me her book. Um, 
And we're going to talk a little bit about that. But I, when I ran into her again um, at the last family office summit, I said, please be, a sh- be on my show. I want you to share your insights and, and how, since you wrote the book, how your, the organization, how you got started, how the organization has evolved, and then what some of your, what your focuses are going forward, you know, based on new opportunities in the marketplace. So she's going to um, share that with us and this inside secrets to venture capital. And so <clears throat> let me first, you know, get, set the stage and then we'll bring Teresa on. Because, you know, the thing that you that we want you to understand why I'm excited about Teresa, and you'll get excited about listening to this and want to share it with your friends. So she's the managing director of Silicon Pasture Angel Investor Network and the general partner of an early stage venture capital fund, right? They're in the mix that we're talking about. And the manager of a private equity strategy for a multifamily offer, office. Excuse me. Teresa has invested in... 40 early stage companies and has realized nine exits that has provided the investors that she co-invested with and all the ones that just came in as separate from what she was how she was involved with between 2x and 20x their initial investment and so that's a really good track record when you look at um on the angel side and then you know moving into this into this venture capital side and and you know some of those clearly some of those investments are still in the portfolio waiting for an exit and over the last 18 years, Teresa has syndicated numerous deals with angel networks, family offices, and professional VC funds throughout the Midwest, and probably one of the most dominant um, influencers with entrepreneurism in the Midwest. We don't really think about the Midwest as being a, you know, this, this kind of vibrant area of innovation coming out, but there really is a lot of exciting things going on in the Midwest. And it's, you know, beyond what might be going on in Texas and out on the West Coast or in the Southeast and the Northeast. And, and, I, and I would venture to say that uh, what Teresa has done has been a very much of a catalyst for a lot of that happening and this connection that she makes. But it's emphasis, and she'll talk about this in a little bit, is, is with South Korea and, the, and over in the Asia Pacific. And, and this world is flat. Our world is flat. Our growth strategy and companies that are growing to get into VC space really have to think about how they expand beyond the borders of the United States. She has served as a technology scout for the Korea-based company Hansel Chemical, which spun off was a spinoff from Samsung, and has participated in a co-GP relationship with Sovereign, a Korean Sovereign Wealth Fund. Her book, The Venture Cafe, the book I talked about, was turned into a global foundation the, that hosts weekly networking events in 11 cities around the world, including Boston, St. Louis, Miami, Winston-Salem, Providence, Philadelphia, Rotterdam, Sydney, Warsaw, and Tokyo. So as you can see, this, I, I'm excited. I can't wait to hear all that Teresa is going to share with us. And thank you very much for Teresa. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Karen. It's great to be here. Okay. So Okay, so let, first thing, let's talk about this is, you know, what I just described is, you know, kind of a, a spotlight, you know, where you are now, but there's a journey to have gotten there. And in the beginning of your Venture Cafe book, you, so you talk about, you know, going from, I guess, a student on MIT campus into an entrepreneur endeavor that really laid the groundwork of your knowledge that you shared in the book. So talk about that piece of your journey and, and how you came to, to you know, getting to the point of being able to start the Venture Cafe up there and, and you know, going from okay. Boston, um, I guess, and Milwaukee. 
Sure. Well, I, I started in Milwaukee. My family has been in Milwaukee for uh, now five generations, and um, I really grew up with the mindset that you needed to get a job. And um, although my great-grandfather had been an entrepreneur, he had started a family business that had kept our family um, in, in you know fashionable style for 100 years. But um, when I was six, that, that business ended, it filed a Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Um, and so I really felt uh, felt like I like I needed to get a job. So I went to MIT because I was told I would always be employable. I would always MIT graduates get jobs; they get hired. So um, I went there, and I was just gonna. But I wanted to be this writer. I wanted to be this author. So I had uh, a desire to write a book, but I also wanted stability. Um, and so I got a job in book publishing. Um, I worked for Kluwer Academic Publishers, which is a Dutch publishing house, and that. That might have um, been influential because the Dutch look at the world as a gigantic opportunity. You can look at their history. They've invested significantly throughout the world. It's all about sending out the ships and deciding where to put your money to work. And so Kluwer Academic Publishers gave me a job. I went and um, so I was an acquisitions editor, and my job was to follow the money. My job was to look at all of North America as an opportunity, whether it's the United States or Canada. Um, I was supposed to be on the road one week out of three or one week out of four, visiting research universities and um, follow the money, find out where dollars were going into research. And then my my category was environmental science, technology, and human health. So then go and approach those professors who were getting grants and ask them if they wanted to write a research monograph and find out um, if they wanted to start a new academic journal. So one thing that came out of that was I started the Journal of Precision Agriculture, which has grown significantly, and I did some books on quantitative microbiology and environmental fluid dynamics. But I also learned how um, how you go out and collect business, collect um, book proposals, bring them back to the house, and um, then show them to different departments. And you know, then we we would bid on we would bid on certain books. We would make an offer to authors, and you know. More dollars were going into venture capital in 1997, 1998. So I saw that spike. I saw the dollars rising, and I said, "This would be a great time." And I said, "Venture capital—that's when you know people give millions of dollars to an unproven technology. I wonder why they do that. I wonder how venture capitalists make those decisions." So my husband was starting an Ethernet telephone business on the MIT campus. He um, he had had this idea for an Ethernet telephone. He decided he'd try to go. Get, um, get his intellectual property taken care of at the technology licensing office, and the technology licensing officer quit his job and just said, hey, let's start a new business. And he wrote a business plan, and in a very, very short amount of time, they had 500000 then they recruited a big-name big, big name guy out of the big telephone company, Lucent, um, Dan Masiello, then they, they got millions of dollars. Ultimately, they got $16.7 million in venture capital financing, and I always wondered why. How had those venture capitalists decided to make that to, to make that decision? Why would you throw millions of dollars at this unproven yeah. thing, this unproven team? Huh. Um, and they did it. And so I that was my that was my hook, that was my book hook, because I thought, you know what, people will pay twenty dollars twenty nine ninety nine to learn the answer, to learn how they can increase their own chances of um, getting venture capital and. You know, when I was writing this book, I went and bought a book called How to Write a Book Proposal, How to Write a Book Proposal. And the the person who gave a blurb on the back ultimately bought my book. I did the thing that he asked. It was, like, completely methodical. So this was how do you get venture capital? 
how do you make your business plan what the venture capitalists want? And I, you know, so I, I tried to put that in the book. Well, and you are able to gather direct experience from, you know, your, your husband's experience on what he went through, the trials and tribulations. And your book goes through a lot of, a lot of stories, a lot of stories from a lot of different um, companies, entrepreneurs, their trials and tribulations on that, but then also a lot of VCs and, and what they look for, right? So you, you cover uh, a lot of different experiences that, that entrepreneurs might be able to relate to. Yep. Um, there was a very popular television show called Cheers, and whenever my sister would visit me in Boston, she would want to go to the Cheers bar. And there was a, and so I thought, well, hey, it's a bar. Cheers is a bar. Okay, well, there's a bar on the MIT campus where people come together to talk about entrepreneurship. Um, maybe I'll just go to this bar and have all these voices and interview people. And Because at the time, I didn't know the content that I was writing about. I just pitched a book proposal, and I thought I'd go backfill it. I'll get people to talk. Um, and there was this, there's this completely awesome book called Joe Gould's Secret, where Joe Gould goes out and he's writing an oral history of our time, and he goes and collects amazing stories relating to our time, which was, I think, the 1930s in his case. And I said, I will write an oral history of our time, and my time at the time was 1999, 2000, 2001. And everybody wanted to contribute. People were very chatty during 1999, 2000. Um, um, this was pre-9-11. At 9-11, they all stopped talking, but fortunately, I had done all my research. I had had all my interviews taped, and I had enough content for the whole book. Um, but, yeah, the idea was, how do we do it? How do we feel? And I, I think each individual person has their own individual story, their own individual feelings, whether they are an, a person inside a company thinking about quitting their job, whether they have just quit their job and started to work on starting this business, whether they're recruiting employees, whether they're raising venture capital, whether they are a venture capitalist or whether they are a corporate lawyer um, trying to you know, provide structure and financing to these companies. Everybody has their own perspective, and some of them are quite interesting. So I just let the best stories win. Right. So in sort of so with the beginning, the first couple chapters are all about um, getting started and like the the nuts and bolts of getting started in a business, and you know getting you know the pieces and parts put together, building teams, getting you know protecting your intellectual property and things like that, and then uh, in Chapter six, she gets into what venture capitalists look for and their and when they evaluate new proposals. And I was looking at one of your side boxes in here. I guess you interviewed Joe Casey, and I loved his his quote. What he talks about, he says, um, uh, "We don't invest in companies see. unless we can add value." That one. Well, it's like we look at. Okay, VCs earn the right to invest their money in an entrepreneur's company by demonstrating that they have specific knowledge about the industry in question, relevant operating experiences they can impart, and are meaningful relationships with significant industry players. Likewise, entrepreneurs earn the right to develop relationships with specific VCs by demonstrating that their first that their product and service will complement and extend the family's existing body of knowledge. Be selective and screen the choice of partner with the scrutiny sufficient for any long-term relationship, Casey says. There is a high, higher likelihood of success if you can say you've done projects in this area before, here's a new one, 
here's how it fits your portfolio. Here's how other companies in the portfolio might benefit from working with us. I thought that particular insight there was spot on, obviously, because it's his, he's a VC and he's talking about it, but also because it's a lot of what, when I, you know, I talk about angel investors in my book, Inside Secrets to Angel Investing, is about angel investors and how they get involved with entrepreneurs. And we have, there's a chapter in there where you go through, the, the, like compared to getting married, right? You have your first date, then you have your court, you have your introduction, your first date, then your courtship. And, and, it's, and, and this is something that you shared at the last, at the panel you were on at the Family Office Summit was this relationship. And when he says long-term relationship, it is, it's not just about the money. It's about on, on active investors, it's the value that they bring to the company and what they can do to help in some cases, which I think you'll probably share is how you get access to the VCs because he goes on to talk about, you know, not just receiving a, a blind proposal. It needs to, ideally it has a connection into the VC organization from somebody, either a prior entrepreneur, an investor that they know, another VC, somebody that they kind of, that's in their sphere of influence, but also connecting it up and making it relevant as to why they should care based on their current portfolio and how it enhances that. So, you know, take it, so, so expand on that and talk about that, how important relationships are, how important it is for an entrepreneur to do their homework because like he says, you can go to any library and out of the internet and get, you know, a guide to venture capital sources. And just because, you know, they have a description that somebody said that they do biomed or something like that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to do what you consider what you are. You need to look at their portfolio and, so, and, and really, you know, make that relevant to them before they're going to spend the time to evaluate your deal. So expand on that for our audience, please. Okay. Um, well, I look at entrepreneurs. Um, I judge entrepreneurs from the first moment of the first, um, the first touch. Um, the, the way they get my attention, I think, matters. I'm looking at their ability to develop and maintain long-term relationships, and I'm looking at their persistence and their ability to get through, cut through the noise um, while maintaining their own um, equanimity, their own uh, personal integrity. I'm looking at are they comfortable in their own skin. Um, so, you know, some people, you know, are, are able to make phone calls. Let's be positive. It's really great in this day and age if a person is able to make phone calls, in my opinion. Um, I've, I've got a phone. It rings. And um, every now and again, you know, I, I don't check my voicemail every five minutes, but I'll go through and check my voicemail and I'll go call everybody back. Um, and I want to find out who called. Um, I'll check my email. Who is sending me email? I'll, send my t I'll check text messages. If you're doing a call, you can send a text message. Um, that means that someone wants to have a relationship, have a long-term relationship. Um, I look for people who, who are trustworthy. Um, I, the thing that I said at the Family Office Summit was one entrepreneur that I'm working with who's been extraordinarily successful, his father was my high school English teacher. He taught me Romeo and Juliet. And um, so, his, so his son is this entrepreneur. And I knew when, when I was in ninth grade, this man was teaching English and his wife was starting a business. They had a son. The son grew up. He took over his, father, his mother's business. It was the mother's business. And he grew it. He grew it from five employees to 150, and he sold it. And um, 
then he, he traveled around the world. He, this is Kyle Weatherly of Front Desk, stayfrontdesk.com. He traveled around the world, and he stayed in Airbnbs. And some of these Airbnbs um, were, were great and well-maintained, and others were not. And he said, what if there was a way to um, standardize the B&B experience, the Airbnb experience? And he, so he created this standardized, secure, short-term, secure, well-managed, short-term stays. And I thought that was a good idea, but more importantly, I knew that it was Kyle, and I knew that Kyle had personal integrity, and people liked him, and they liked following him. And um, I knew where he was going to be getting his employees from. Um, and I believe that um, with, my, with my personal connections, I can help Kyle grow his business. He needs certain things. He needs certain, um, you know, he needs certain doors to be opened or certain connections. And I think that I can work with, work with Kyle, and I think that he's going to be receptive and appreciative of um, the doors I'm going to open and the suggestions I'm going to make. At the very least, he's going to listen and be polite in saying, that's a great idea. We thought about it. We, we decided not to do it for this reason. Um, that's part of having a good long-term relationship. Yeah. And, and so what you just kind of mentioned, and it's sort of a, uh, to digress just a bit, but I think it's a point, an important point, and I don't want to be lost on the audience that they missed this, because I use it a lot when, in the event that I'm coaching a startup on how to raise capital, one of the things I emphasize, and I mentioned it at the very beginning, about like friends and family. And so it's really one degree separation. And a lot of times entrepreneurs go, well, I don't have any rich friends and family. That's why I'm talking to you, Karen. <laughs> and, uh, and so, but, you know, in order, because I think you've shared, you know, the kinds of, of deals that you look at, you look for, and a lot of angel groups look for a minimum amount of revenue, a minimum amount of customers and engagement that validates their market. And and I, so I tell people when you're raising that first thing to be able to build your prototype, to be able to get your product to market, that piece of it before you're eligible to go to, you know, stranger angels, it's that who do you know? And you, your dad, like in this case, his, his dad may have invested some seed capital in it, but he may not be at a point where he could grow a big business because he's a high school teacher, right? He's not going to be able to put a lot in. So normally an entrepreneur might think, well, my dad doesn't have a lot of money. I can't do it. But unless your dad becomes your cheerleader to be able to tell other people about it or talk to other people and go, oh, well, maybe you should talk to so-and-so, right? Your dad doesn't understand the whole value proposition of what you're trying to do to have made the introduction to you, you know? And your exactly. kid didn't know that his dad knew this angel investor slash venture capitalist. Right, it necessarily didn't think. Oh, I remember that lady that when I was growing up or whatever. You know, it just you know. So those are those thin threads that become part of a potential friend and family connection, or an extension of that, or at least just starting the relationship. Says, okay, I trust that relationship because of this and what I knew and where you come from. And once you get to this point, I totally want to help you succeed. And then that's also what you do in your venture cafe, right? There's a lot of mentoring and your whole angel group. So talk about how your angel group comes together to mentor these entrepreneurs and, and grow them on into that next stage of escalation. Sure. Um, well, one of the things we look for is, is an entrepreneur coachable? Um, do they, do they appreciate our advice? Do they want to take our advice? Will they ask for, um, for help if they need it? And, We've just made an investment in a company, and I'm going to meet with the entrepreneur post-investment this Friday afternoon at 4 p.m. 
um, to, to in, make some introductions and suggest that she make some phone calls to people who could help her. I think I think there's some um, strategic you know partners that she should approach. Um, but uh, yeah, our our groups you know angel investors are they join angel investment networks for different reasons. Sometimes they were themselves successful, so they sold their business, and um, now they've got time, and you know they've got money in the bank. They've got time, and they they want to stay in the game. They want to have a reason to call their connections and ask for favors, and ask you know, could you open a door? Could you take a look at this? Could you do you have any thoughts? Um, that's personally gratifying. Everybody wants to stay active. You know, when people when when you sell business, you sell business for a hundred million dollars. What do you do? You know, a lot of people will immediately take an amazing vacation, go play golf, um, then they'll go around the world, maybe take a cruise. You know, then then they come back, then they go back out again, come back, and you want to stay connected. You want to have a home, um, and you know, and so we provide that home. It, this, the Angel Investment Network is that home. People can talk about the amazing vacations that they came on, and then what are you doing? You know, what are you doing? You don't have to work. What would you do if you didn't have to work? This is actually something that people grapple with. Well, if you didn't have to work, you would do what? Sleep all day? No. Um, you know, you got to stay active. You got to keep your brain active, keep your body active. And that's why people do mentoring. Um, there's a, there's a, it's, the need is on both sides. And if the best thing is when people are polite and appreciative. So an entrepreneur who is polite and appreciative and honest. So in the, in the ideal case, somebody is completely honest. You know, they say, you know what, I didn't have any money growing up. My family does not have any money. How much did I invest in the business? Ten thousand dollars because it was all I had. This is my this is this is my career. This is this is it. Um, one entrepreneur I know is living with her partners in a shared apartment because that's all they can afford, and they're really honest about it. And everybody loves them. Whereas another person, they're trying. You know, if they're if they're not really comfortable in their own skin, they try to show off and they try to you know make things look better than they are. You can just pretty much see it clearly as an investor. So it's it's far better to be honest. Um, the worst, the worst thing, worst example of, I would say, lack of lack of honesty, lack of reliability was um, this past summer, an entrepreneur pitched us and said, "Oh my gosh, this is the greatest company ever! I, you know, when we really have to get to a closing, really have to get to a closing, really, really have to get to a closing," and made this deadline, and you know, um, and, and you know, immediately after the deadline, one person, you know, went and took a took a trip, came back, found out the entrepreneur had gone and gotten another job, um, <laughs> just like. Seriously, I mean, this is why angels like to drag out the um, due diligence process, and we're going to take as much time as we need to take, and it's really about the relationship, and is it about the relationship for the entrepreneur back, or, you know, because it takes two sides to make a relationship. Right, and trust. A big part of it is the trust factor. Yep. Yep. Right, and which is why I, I tell people the reason why investors, angel investors, expect you to have done a friends and family round is because there's two things. One, and this kind of goes into this global expansion, which I'm going to let you talk about your your focus on that now. But it's um, it's like, do you believe as the entrepreneur founder that this business is going to be so big that you're going to make a return on investment? That it's gonna it's gonna achieve these big uh, lofty goals, and 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 you have confidence that you can achieve those that based on your research of the business market and everything like that. So, and the second piece of it is your character as a, as an entrepreneur and founder. So friends and family become the ones that know this well, and that if you're not willing to put 
those folks that are close in to you or you know one to two degree separations money at risk that means you as a as the founder don't believe in the potential success enough you want stranger money in not you know people that you got to see again sometime right or something you know and uh, and then it's also or do they know something about your character that you're not going to follow through on what you commit and they're not willing to put their money at it but that's it's a litmus test for the that the sophisticated investors that make up your business angels people that are in the business of investing and then that's the reason why vc follows i mean there's a numbers game with with volume and dollar amounts that vcs you know fall into but they also want to know that you have the ability to raise a full route of capital from angel investors that have their own you know criteria and sense of risk and things like that before you know it goes into the next piece of it which is on the VC side so talk about from a VC's perspective and then specifically what you are doing with this expansion and utilizing your resources over in, in South Korea why having a global perspective of a business is important and why does that matter to venture capitalists okay um I think venture capitalists like to come in after angel investors because the deal has been vetted. Um, it, it is a your, your higher pro, higher probability of success if there are some seasoned um, seasoned hands on the team. They used to call them gray hairs. Now they just call them board members or advisory board members or advisors. Um, we're just everybody is looking to lower the risk. Everybody is looking to find the best company. Um, at the revenue level, the best company at the pricing level that they can find that they won't have to, um, you know, overpay. They won't have to have a, get into a bidding war with other investors. So they want to find deals that other people haven't seen. Um, but, and that's, you know, part of the reason why I'm in Milwaukee, because the deals that I see here are not deals that are being highly, you know, it's, it's not like we're going to get in a bidding war in every every company that we look at, like you might in some other parts of the country. Um but we want so so I am in Milwaukee, and I am in the center of the world's largest market. And I live in General Douglas MacArthur's hometown. His uh, grandfather was the governor of um, state of Wisconsin, and so that that information is important and valuable to people on the other side of the world, where General Douglas MacArthur did a lot of work. It it's, means something to people in Japan and South Korea. Um, and when I look at a company, I say. Okay, you are currently based in Milwaukee. You're currently based in Madison, in Chicago, in Illinois somewhere. How are you going to grow? I suspect that folks around here are left to their own devices. They might be able to expand to other, um, other, you know, they might be able to find customers in their home market. They might be able to go out, expand regionally, find regional customers. Maybe they will be able to um, expand nationally on their own. That's great. And maybe they will also then they'll figure out how to export. Exporting is um, really good. All the all the data says companies that start exporting figure out how to increase their game and are are much more likely to be successful overall. But I I see people around here. They typically look to Europe first. Well, maybe they look to Canada and Mexico, but then they look to Europe. And um, I personally want to help companies expand to Asia via South Korea. Because I am, I have my eye on the rise of the global middle class. So um, I think the biggest opportunity of our time is the um, the fact that more people are now out of poverty than in it. 
that just happened in September, I think, 2019, or very recently. Um, More people are above the poverty line than below it, and people have dollars to spend. When you are middle class, when you're not poor, you're middle class, you've got $10 to $111 per day to blow on luxuries and to spend on um, having a good quality of life. That includes things like having having the ability to take your child to the dentist, the ability to put your kid in kindergarten, um, the ability to buy an ice cream cone, buy some cheese pizza if you feel like it, little luxuries and bigger durable goods, um, being able to own a, to, being able to afford to buy a scooter, being able to, um, you know, d- different different things we take for granted. So going to the doctor that in, that in includes all kinds of diagnostic healthcare tests and dental products and what have you that you know you might not have been able to afford when you were below the poverty line. Um, and that's that's an opportunity. Nine out of ten of the next um, the next members of the gold middle class are going to be in Asia. A lot of them are going to be in China, but also places like um, Indonesia, Cambodia, Vietnam. So we've got we, we look at all that. And who is going to help us? Who's going to help get us there? Well, the Koreans and the Japanese. They are trading countries, so they are looking for products to take with them as they sell products to the members of the global middle class. And they have a long history of sourcing their products and sourcing their innovations from the United States, and fortunately for me, they have a history of sourcing innovations from Wisconsin, from Milwaukee. Obviously, you can you know, approach them yourself from wherever you are, but I'm, this is where I am, and I see that as an advantage. You have, to, you have to be confident that the place you are is the best place, and then you have to sell that and market it. And fortunately, those roads, the roads between Wisconsin and Japan, Wisconsin and Korea have been well-traveled, and I am delighted to be going down those roads. Yes, <clears throat> very good. So, so we've got uh, a few more minutes here before we have to to wrap up. I want to encourage folks if, uh, while you're still listening, you know, if you if you're in the show notes, you will see some of these links. Um, if not, but you can get uh, in touch with Teresa and understand more about her firm, Silicon Pastures, at siliconpastures.com. The contact information is there. And, of course, silicon is S-I-L-I-C-O-N and pastures, as you would think. And then also the Venture Cafe, a global organization with uh, to cultivate entrepreneurism. And I guess you also probably provide some cultivation of investors in those communities by connecting up and creating these environments. You can get to that um, website. is VentureCafeGlobal.org, VentureCafeGlobal.org. And on there are links to all the different cities that have these uh, venture caf- cafes. I mean, of course, the book is called The Venture Cafe, and you can get that on Amazon and most uh, 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 places that sell books and, and things like that as well. So um, so with that, talk about you know what, what other things you want to make sure we haven't covered that you make sure our audience gets to hear your you know, gold nugget or a call to action or something that you would like to share, Teresa. Sure. Um, I would say Teresa at Teresa.org. I'm available, T-E-R-E-S-A, at T-E-R-E-S-A dot O-R-G. My partners in Korea would like to hear about folks that care about South Korea. So there are many, many opportunities for um, people to go back and forth, and there are opportunities. There are contests that the Korean government sponsors um, that um, you know you can learn about, know about, hear about, um, if you've got a product and you think you should, you'd like to 
take that product to Korea. Um, there might be somebody over there who's waiting to hear from you. Um, that's that's what that's what I'm doing these days. Also, free beer, free wine. Um, the Venture Cafe is a place where you go to get a free beer. Who's going to pay for it? The venture capitalists are going to pay for it. The big sponsors, the big piles of money, they are going to buy you a free beer or wine or mixed drink or what have you at any one of these cities. Any one of these cities where you show up, there's a venture cafe, show up. It's Thursday night, 3 p.m. to 8 p.m. You sign in. You give your um, name, um, name of your business, email address, what category you are, and then gender affiliation or don't have one, just put that in the computer. It's a real brief survey. Then you get you get in. And you get you get talking and you get a free um, you get you get to drink without paying because that's the point it's it's you're you're adding to the global mix and you're helping make connections and you're bringing your connections and your experience and you're gaining the connections and the experience of everybody else who's there too so um, hopefully they're on track to getting to 50 cities you know it would be fun if um, maybe in the if, if like when my kids leave the house and we've got you know more time to just travel around, go to these venture cafes and just um, just meet everybody. And some people have done it. When I was in Tokyo, I met some people. They're like, oh, yeah, I've been to all these venture cafes. And you just, wow. you know, you can you can meet people, and it's, it's, it's zero cost. So it's kind of fun. Yeah, maybe you'll come to Atlanta at some point. We'll get one down here. That would be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So very good. So. I want to encourage everybody to uh, get in touch with Teresa. If you're in the Midwest, definitely you need to, you know, I, I feel pretty certain, and you can, can confirm this, Teresa, that even if it isn't something that's, that's within your portfolio, chances are you know an organization around, um, around you know, in the Midwest or groups that it may be a better fit for that you'll help you know, the qualified entrepreneur get in touch with. Yep, that's exactly right. If if anybody approaches me with um, something that, in my opinion, has close to, you know, just absolutely no, I don't have any kind of clue where they're going, but they are at, at, at least trying by reaching out at all. I have three different organizations to refer them to in Milwaukee because that is where I live. And, you know, there are other there are other places where, you know, if, if you know, you can't, you can't be – you, there is no bottom. Anybody who is trying is worth helping, and there are organizations that you can find that will help you. Yeah. Okay, great. And then also make sure you stop in at one of those venture cafes um, if you're in those cities and when you're in those cities. And uh, with that, um, I want to encourage folks also to go out to my website. It's karenrands.co, K-A-R-E-N-R-A-N-D-S, dot C-O, not dot com, dot C-O. And uh, you'll get information about how we help entrepreneurs, how we help investors getting started in this, learn more about it, to complete their due diligence. If they're not in an angel group that does due diligence, we can help and assist with that. Uh, all of my social media is there, as well as you know all of the podcasts and blogs and videos and all that other content that I put out there to help educate on investors and entrepreneurs. And so with that, I want to say thank you very much for tuning in. Please uh, comment and share. And uh, I always close out with onwards and upwards. Thank you, Teresa, for being my guest today. Thank you. It was my pleasure.